tracking? <clears throat> Before I jump into the sermon, uh, I want to I make a plea to you. And my plea to you this morning is that you would not be sluggish hearers. Uh, some sermon series feel different than others. When we preached through the Lord's Prayer, it was super heavy on application and illustration, and I think it was a little bit breezier. Hebrews has been a little bit thicker, you know, kind of like a trod through the mud. It's been a little bit more difficult, especially because what we're trying to do here is make our way through Hebrews in five sermons. So what that means is this morning, we are covering Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 in one sermon. As you can imagine, that means that some of what we walk through this morning is going to be dense. There's going to be a lot of teaching uh, and a little application. Not no application, but probably much less application than you're used to. Uh, it would be great if I could get up here, tell a couple of jokes, and hit you with like 10 different personal illustrations that are heartwarming and touching and funny all at the same time. Uh, but that's not what's going to happen in this morning's sermon. So I just want to encourage you not to turn your brains off and to remember that we're required to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, okay? So this morning, we're going to be having to do a little bit of thinking together. You guys with me? Can we do it? All right, I'll take that half-hearted response as a yes and amen. Okay. Um, when you read the Bible, uh, you find that Scripture is full of big, bold characters with these larger-than-life stories. Maybe you started your Bible reading plan to make it through the whole Bible in a year. You started that at the beginning of January, and you're already starting to see that as you work your way through Genesis. You know, just these incredible sagas and epics. Uh, Melchizedek is not one of those characters. He does not have a big whopper of a life story. Uh, the story of Melchizedek actually only takes up three verses in the book of Genesis. Um, we just don't know much about him. But let me tell you what we do know. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 1, the author tells us that he was a king. Next, in 7-1 as well, we also know that he was a high priest or a priest. Uh, that is, he was an intermediary between God and man. Next, in 7, verse 2, we also know what his name means, right? He was king of righteousness and king of priests. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's breaking down the name Melchizedek. So Milk uh, is righteousness and Zedek is king. So he's the king of righteousness. But also Hebrews tells us that he was not only Melchizedek the king, but he was the king of Salem. And Salem is the word for peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Okay. We also know that the patriarch Abraham tithed to him. That is, he gave a tenth of his spoils. You can see that in chapter 7, verse 2. And then finally, in light of the fact that Abraham tithed to him in chapter 7, verse 7, the author of Hebrews tells us that obviously Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because the inferior tithes to the superior. That's the logic there. Okay. So now we have to ask, okay, that seems like a pretty good amount of information. Where does the author of Hebrews get all of this information? Well, he gets it from three verses in Genesis chapter 14, in what uh, he refers to in 7.1 as uh, the account of the slaughter of the kings. I like that. I don't think a Hollywood producer could have thought of a more awesome way to say that. The account of the slaughter of the kings from Genesis 14. Uh, we're not going to go back there. I'd encourage you to go back and read it later, but let me summarize it for you this morning, okay? There were four kings who decided to go up 
against five other kings in war. Now, when I say king, uh, uh, I don't want you to think about somebody like Prince Edwards or, excuse me, King Edward or, or King Charles or, or anything like that. Think more like Mayor Adam West, okay? Somebody who's a mayor of a, of a fairly small town, okay? Now, uh, these kings were victorious. The four that attacked the five, they were victorious, and they took great plunder, and they exploited their, their foes. You know, they took livestock and men and women and children, and one of the captives that they took was Lot. If you know your Bible, you know that Lot was the cousin of Abraham. Okay, now listen, if you grew up in the South, you know what it's like to have to go fight on behalf of your cousin, okay? So Abraham, you know, everybody's everybody's cousin in the South, you know? I ain't going to let my cousin get beat up. Uh, So uh, Abraham says, okay, I got to go get my cousins back. I got to go get Lot back. So he grabs a couple hundred guys from his household, and they go out, and they wage war against these kings, and they win. Good news. After the battle, uh, one of the kings who was initially defeated that Abraham saved, he goes up to Abraham to thank him. And along with him comes another king. This king is the king of Salem. This is Melchizedek. And as Melchizedek, this priest king guy, comes up, uh, he offers some wine and some bread to sustain Abraham and his people after the victory. And in response, in thankfulness and recognition of his superiority, Abraham takes a tenth of the plunder and tithes it to this king priest Melchizedek. And that's it. That's all we know about the guy. The book of Genesis just doesn't tell us anything about him. We don't know where he was born. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know where he died, which is pretty significant because uh, everybody who's anybody in the book of Genesis has some kind of genealogy, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and they lived X amount of time, and then they died, right? And then often you know where they died because it was marked off with some kind of marking, but not Melchizedek. Now, given the relative obscurity of this character from the book of Genesis, you would just think that there's not really a whole lot to say about him throughout the rest of Scripture. But that's not true. He pops up in Psalm 110, which is one of the most often quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. And then after that, we have three chapters in the book of Hebrews. Five, kind of six. Six is kind of a break, but basically five and seven. So two chapters in the book of Hebrews, dedicated to talking about this guy, Melchizedek. And if we're being honest, when we come to this portion of Scripture, maybe in like our Bible reading plans for the year, we're, we're reading through Hebrews for some reason, we, we read, maybe you felt this emotion this morning, you're reading through it and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on here. I don't understand. And so you either end up skipping it or you kind of breeze through it where you read, but you don't really read. You know, your eyes just scan the page, but you're not actually getting anything. Or you say, you know, I'll mark this down, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to study it later. And then you never do, okay? And we do that because uh, Melchizedek scares us. We don't understand the, the argument being made here. We don't understand why he's so important. So my hope for you in this morning's sermon is that... Uh, well, actually, my big hope would be that, like, after I get done, everyone would be excited about, Mel- about Melchizedek because Melchizedek teaches us something about Jesus. But I'm a realist, you know what I'm saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tamp down my expectations a little bit. Maybe everyone won't be excited about Melchizedek after this, but maybe at least you won't be afraid of him. Maybe you'll go, okay, I think I understand what's happening here. Maybe you won't be able to articulate it as well as I can, but at least you'll understand 
what's going on. Now, uh, before I jump into like the main body of the sermon, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the outline of this morning's sermon. Uh, it's going to feel like two sermons in one because it essentially is two sermons in one. Uh, in chapter 5, the author begins his argument about Melchizedek and the priesthood. And then he does all of chapter 7. Chapter 6 is like a breakaway. Uh, I told you when we first started the book of Hebrews that it goes through these cycles of exhortation and teaching, teaching and exhortation. And I told you that it feels very much like a sermon. Well, you can really feel that in this morning's text. It feels like a pastor who's teaching on something and then he stops to like give an aside and then he comes back to his content. So that's what all of chapter six is. It's like an aside and then he comes back to his argument in chapter seven. So uh, with that in mind, let me pray and then we will dive in. Father, you tell us that we need to strive. You tell us that we need to work hard. You tell us that we need to listen and pay close attention. You tell us not to be dull, but we need your help. If left to our own devices, we will not do that which we are supposed to do, and we will do that which we are not supposed to do. So warm uh, the affections of our hearts, Lord, and sharpen our minds as we listen to your word. Amen. Okay, so let's get back to our favorite Bible character, Melchizedek, Milky as I like to call him. Now, you should know that there are two basic views about Melchizedek. Uh, the first view is that he is a theophany. Now, if you've never heard that phrase before, it's okay. Uh, it, theophany is this idea that Jesus uh, was uh, making visitations in the Old Testament before he became Jesus, the God-man incarnate in the New Testament. And I do think that you see these uh, in the Old Testament, pre-incarnation visitations from Jesus. I do not think that that's what Melchizedek is, and which leads me to my second view of Melchizedek, that he is a real person from the Old Testament who was a shadow or a type of Christ, someone who was pointing forward to, to, to the coming of Jesus. Now, if you don't know what a type is, we're going to talk about that real quick before we elaborate. So go with me to chapter 10, verse 1. Flip on over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. In, in, in this section, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to talk about the sacrificial system. You have to remember, the, the whole book of Hebrews is really about shadows and types. It's about how everything in the Old Testament uh, was only meant to be temporary, and it was only meant to point forward to Jesus. So the slaughtering of the lambs and goats, it was never meant to be permanent. It was supposed to point forward to Jesus, our ultimate sacrifice, right? The priesthood was never meant to be permanent. It was only supposed to point forward to Jesus, our forever high priest, okay? And so here in chapter 10, the author is talking a little bit about the law, and he says in verse 1, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, I'm not going to address his argument here. I just want you to see the language he uses. He says that the law is like a shadow Right? And it's, it's a shadow of the good things to come. And the good things to come are the gospel realities, okay? the, the true things themselves. So, for example, if, if the sun is shining at a sharp angle and you see my shadow on the ground, there is a sense in which looking at my shadow is a pretty good representation of me. You can see my basic outline, you know, my big fat head. Uh, you can see my broad 
manly shoulders there. You can see it all, okay? But if you look at the shadow, you know it's still not me. It's just a, it's, it's a representation of me. But if you look up and you see me, you see the reality, okay? This is the language of the book of Hebrews and really all of the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. All of these things were shadows or types pointing forward to Jesus. Okay, you with me? Melchizedek was a shadow, a type of Christ. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my main argument for why I think Melchizedek was not a theophany, why he wasn't some pre-incarnate incarnation of Christ. I actually have four arguments for why I think that that's the case, but as I was previewing the sermon, I realized it was turning more into a lecture than a sermon. So I'm just going to give you what I think is like the one silver bullet argument on that, okay? So... Um, Go to chapter 7, verse 3. This is a short argument. It's super simple. Chapter 7, verse 3. Talking about Melchizedek, uh, it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy. So, so just so you know, I don't think that that text there means that he literally did not, ha- did not have a father or a mother. I think saying that he did not have a father or a mother is just another way of talking about the fact that he didn't have a genealogy. He, he, he was born of someone. We just don't know who because the book of Genesis doesn't record who, okay? So he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life as recorded for us, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a high priest forever. Now look over to 7.15. It says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, and then so on and so forth, but he's talking about Jesus. Now, uh, what you'll notice here is the way that the author of Hebrews is arguing is he's saying that Jesus is like Melchizedek, and like is an adjective that's used in similes to compare two nouns that are different. So Jesus can't be Melchizedek if he is like Melchizedek. The author is very intentionally drawing comparison between these two because they are not the same person. I have other arguments against him being a theophany. If you want to know more about it, talk to me after church. But I think it's pretty clear that we're supposed to understand him as a type. Um, now, now here's the question. Why? Why did God in his perfect providence record this tiny encounter about this strange, obscure priest king uh, in the pages of Scripture? Well, I think I have an answer to that. Let me try and explain. The author of Hebrews is trying to show us that Jesus is our eternal high priest, right? As we've been walking through this, hopefully you've been reading the text before uh, service to prepare to listen well on a Sunday morning, but even as you've been listening and as we've been walking through these verses together, you've seen that the author is constantly referring to Jesus as our high priest, Uh, and he's going to do it throughout the rest of the letter, okay? So he's making this argument, but there's a problem with this argument, and it may not be immediately obvious to you because you don't come from a heavily Jewish tradition, but you remember this letter is written to the diaspora, the, the Jewish background Christians who have been scattered because of persecution. Now, one thing that every Jew would know is that you can't be a king and a priest at the same time. You can't do it. Every good Jew, even if they're a converted Jew to Christian, they would have grown up knowing the story of somebody like Saul, who was Israel's first king, 
but who nevertheless got the kibosh, who got the pink slip, who got fired because he tried to not only be a king, but to be a priest. They would have known that there were prohibitions in the law against being both priest and king. And they would have also known some other things, like the fact that if you're going to be a priest, you have to be from the tribe of Levi, right? You have to be from the descendancy of Aaron and Levi. Only men who come from the tribe of Levi can be priests. Well, there's a problem with that. The problem is that Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the kingly tribe. And so all these early Christians, they knew and thought about Jesus as their great king from the tribe of Judah. So now, Mr. Author of Hebrews, how can you possibly say that Jesus is not only our king, but also our priest? There are a couple of different reasons why theologically that can't make sense. Enter Melchizedek. In Melchizedek, we find a man who, as we learned earlier, was both a priest and a king, right? And who was not descended from the tribe of Judah, nor was he descended from the tribe of Levi because he existed in a time before these tribes even existed. He was a priest king before God even gave the law which would have separated these two offices. So as the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus being not only our king but also our priest, he imagines that someone is going to say, hold on a second, that can't be true. And then he goes, but it can be. Don't you remember Melchizedek? Don't you remember the way that David talked about Melchizedek in Psalm 110? He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, who is that? The Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Who is that? Well, we know now in light of Revelation that it's Jesus. So God the Father says to God, to my, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, so on and so forth. And then he says something else to him. He says, and you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? Well, Melchizedek is a different kind of priest. He's not a priest like the priests were in the tribe of Levi and Aaron. He is an eternal priest. He doesn't have to be descended from anybody. And because of that, he can be a priest and a king. And you can see him summarize this argument in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. He says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that's from Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so I think we're moving now. I think we understand the kind of main thrust of the argument of these three chapters, but let's, let's keep building. But in order, to, in order to take another step forward, we need to take a step back real quick. We need to review. Uh, last, no, two weeks ago we saw that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? And because Jesus is greater than the angels, his message is greater than theirs, and so we need to be careful to listen. Then last week we saw that Jesus is greater than Moses, Right? He is our greater Moses leading us through the wilderness to the promised land. Okay? And because of that, we need to strive to enter into that promised land. This week is all about Jesus being greater than the priesthood. So Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now Jesus is greater than the priesthood. 
right? And how is he greater? Well, he is the fulfillment of the priesthood. And that's what this whole Melchizedek thing is, is all about. It's part of a much larger argument about Jesus doing away with the priesthood by fulfilling it. Now, uh, you may think, great, Sean, that's a fantastic Bible lecture, you know, good, good, good for you, but why does that matter? Why is any of this good news uh, that, that Jesus is our high priest? And, you know, I think most of us ask that question because uh, we're just not used to thinking about the concept of a priest. When you think about what a priest is, a priest is somebody who stands in the gap between a holy God and sinful man. And we just don't think in terms of priesthood, I think, uh, not just because we're so far disconnected to, like, the Jewish religion and the like, but also because we just don't think that, that we're that far away from God. We just don't think that, that, that there's a gap that exists between us and God. I mean, I think most modern men and women, when they think about God, they don't think about him as this infinitely righteous and holy and pure being. And we don't think about ourselves as these infinitely corrupt, broken, sinful, fallen, damaged human beings who can in no way approach a holy and righteous God. Modern man, when he thinks about God, if he thinks about God at all, thinks about him as a buddy, a pal, a friend up in the sky, somebody that I can have a relationship with if I want because he's cool like that or somebody that I can, you know, kind of put off to the side, push to the periphery of my life and he'll be there when I decide to come back to him. And you know what? When I do decide to come back to him, I'll be able to approach him no problem because he's love. And so this concept of priesthood, this idea that we need somebody to stand between us and God because he's so holy and we're so sinful. It just, it doesn't make sense for us. And so when we read this argument about Jesus being our eternal high priest, it may not seem like gospel. It may not seem like good news because we really just don't understand how bad the bad news is. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about the priests. Uh, Let's try to understand what a high priest is. And the good news is we don't have to uh, go digging throughout the whole Bible to figure that out. He actually tells us in chapter 5. So turn with me back to chapter 5 now. He tells us a couple of things. Um, Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men. So we see there that a high priest is chosen from among men. Uh, It has to be Uh, A high priest has to be a human being. Next, we see that he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, right? So he stands in the gap. Now, what does he do as he stands in the gap? Well, you keep reading. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So when you think about uh, the offerings in the Old Testament, we're going to walk through Leviticus after we do Hebrews, I think, Lord willing. And you're going to see a lot of uh, sacrifice and offering stuff. Basically, all the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices can be broken down into two categories. Thanksgiving offerings, so like, thank you for being as good as you are to us, and sin offerings, we're sorry that you've been so good to us and we've been so bad to you, okay? And this is what the priest does. He offers those gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, verse two, what else do we know about the high priest? Well, he has to be able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why does he have to be gentle? Well, because he himself is beset with weakness. So we know that because he's a human being, he is necessarily going to have to deal with sin. And that means that he's going to be weak. Verse 3, 
And because of this, because of his weakness and his sinfulness, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And that is the great weakness of a human high priest, of the old covenant priesthood, is that because they were sinful, before they could stand the gap between God and themselves, there had to be a sacrifice made on their own behalf. Well, who's going to be their high priest? It's kind of a problem built into the system there. In verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So uh, it's not uncommon in our day for someone to like start a website, create a Facebook page, open up a Snapchat, or I don't know, whatever, some kind of social media account, and to call themselves a prophet, or to, to get like four people in a room together and to say that they are a pastor, right? Well, the priesthood, not quite how that's supposed to go, and actually that's not how being a pastor is supposed to go either, but... Uh, priesthood, you couldn't just be like, you know what? I think I want to be a priest. You know, okay, who thinks I should be a priest? Come on, let's gather in my living room. Not the way it worked. You had to be appointed by God. Now, uh, before I get into talking about why it's so important that Jesus is our eternal high priest, uh, I just want to ask you if you understand yourself to be in need of a high priest. Do you understand that you need somebody to bridge the gap between you and God. Do you also understand that this is not something that you only need for a little while? This is something that you need forever. You see, here's the thing about sin. From the second that you commit your first sin against God, you are eternally offensive to an eternally holy and righteous God. So whatever solution that God provides to take care of that sin problem, it cannot be a temporary solution. That's why the priesthood was a big problem in the Old Covenant because there was a priest, but the priest would always die. It was, there was no permanent solution. So do you understand yourself to be in need of someone to stand ever before God's presence on your behalf? Something worth thinking about. Okay, back to the text. Uh, I think the argument that the author of Melchizedek spins out in 5 and 7, I think it really gets going in verse 5. So chapter 5, verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the problem was we needed a priest that would last forever, but we didn't have a priest that would last forever. Enter Jesus. Jesus is the solution. But now there's more problems, right? I don't know if you've ever tried to work your way through like a tricky theological issue, or maybe you had some theological issue that you thought was pretty simple, but as soon as you started digging, you started peeling back the layers, and you thought, actually, this is more complicated than I thought. So here, we're like, okay, we need a high priest. This is great. We need an eternal high priest. Okay, I'm tracking. And Jesus is our eternal high priest. And we think, okay, we got the answer. Boom, we've arrived at the conclusion of the very long math problem. But we haven't. Another problem here is, how can Jesus be our eternal high priest? Because we just saw in chapter 5, verse 1, that our high priest has to be chosen from among men. How can we have a high priest chosen from among men who can also serve as our eternal high priest? You can't. And this is why it's so important to remember that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. 
It is only because we can trust in the deity of Jesus Christ and the full humanity of Jesus Christ that we can actually believe the good news that Jesus is our eternal high priest. But that's not all. There's more here. There's more about the superiority of Jesus over this priesthood of the old covenant. And we can just walk through some of those together. So just kind of have your Bibles out. Be ready to flip. As we saw in chapter 7, verse 5, the priests uh, were of the order of Levi. That is, they were descendant from Levi. But Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We also see that the former priests were limited by their own mortality. Look at chapter 7, verse 24. It says, well, we can start in verse 23. The former priests were many in number, that is, not, not all at once, right? He means that there was a legacy. There was like one after another, after another, after another, many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in an office, okay? But, says the author of Hebrews in verse 24, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The former priest, says chapter 7, verse 20, were not established by an oath, but Jesus was. Look there. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The point here is that the priests under the order of Levi, God never said, I'm going to swear by myself to ensure that you remain a priest forever. But that is exactly what he said about Jesus. The former priests we also saw in chapter 5, verse 2, are corrupt. But Jesus is incorruptible. Not only is he not corrupt, but he's not even capable of having any kind of corruption in him. Look at chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. He has no need, like those high priests, those corrupt high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So here the author elaborates on the fact that Jesus is not only the priest, but also the sacrifice that the priest offers. We're not going to hang out on that. We're going to talk about that more next week. The former priests were ministers of the law. You can see that in 7, 18, and 19. But Jesus is the minister of a better covenant, right? Something that's superior to the law. So Jesus is superior because he is over something that is superior. Again, we're going to talk about that next week. The former priesthood was temporary, but Jesus is permanent. And you can just see that. I don't know if uh, any if the, uh, note takers might want to know this, but uh, the phrase, you are a priest forever, is recorded four times in these four chapters. Chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 7, verse 17. I hope you feel the good news of Jesus being superior to the old priesthood. I hope you understand what this means for us. It means that we will forever have a way secured for us to be able to approach the Father. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I do want you to know that you cannot approach the Father as you are right now. God will not receive sin and rebellion and darkness into his holy presence. 
his light would obliterate you. But if you trust in Jesus, if you receive him as the one who can stand in the gap between you and God, then you don't ever have to be afraid. You can walk into the presence of God with a fullness of joy because when God will look at you, he will not see you, he will not see your sin, he will not see your brokenness. He will only see the perfectly righteous life of his son. And then you can go and be with him in his presence forever. This is the good news of the gospel and it is only made possible by Jesus being greater than the priesthood. Now, uh, I think what is really interesting about uh, about this is, is how the author pauses before launching into the next argument. So that's what, that's what we see at the end of chapter five uh, and chapter six. So if you look at the end of chapter five in verse 11, he, he's, he's gotten through like basically getting the first leg of his argument out. And then he pauses and he says this. About this, this whole, this whole priesthood thing that I'm telling you about, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Hey, you got to love that, right? The author of Hebrews is being super transparent. It's like when Peter talks about Paul, he's like, yeah, that guy Paul, he's got some stuff that's difficult to understand, and so people twist it. So the author of Hebrews is doing something really awesome here. He's saying, yeah, I got some, some stuff that's kind of hard to explain, okay? But then he says, since you have become dull of hearing. Ah, so now we see that the problem is not just that it's you know, difficult to follow the reasoning, but it's difficult to understand partially because you have become dull. You just don't have the ability to hear what I'm trying to say to you, right? When, when I read this, I immediately thought about, like, uh, I thought about a parent who is sitting down with a teenager that's in rebellion, okay? And, you know, the, the, the mom and the dad, they've been talking, they've been crying, they've been praying, and they're like, okay, we gotta have this hard talk. We gotta have this sit down. So they sit the teenager down, and they, their hearts are full, right? Probably about to explode. And they kind of think like, I'm just gonna give you all that I have here. I'm gonna be the best parent that I can be in this, in this conversation. I'm gonna try to give you the wisdom that I think I have for you. But as a parent in that moment, there's some fear, and the fear is, I don't think they're going to hear me. I just don't think they're going to be able to hear what I have to say. And so you might, as a parent, even say that to your child. You might even sit there and say, listen, honey, I love you so much. I have something hard for you to hear. And I have to be honest with you, I'm afraid that you're not going to listen. I'm afraid that you're not going to hear me. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing in a very pastoral way before he launches in to his argument. Now, uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, I think this is the author's evidence that the people are growing dull in their hearing. So he says, you're not going to hear me because you're growing dull. And then verse 12 is, is like evidence for that. I know that you've grown dull because by this time you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, right? So how do I know you've become dull of hearing? Well, you guys should be operating at like a master's level of understanding these gospel realities in Jesus, but you're, you're thinking at a high schooler level, okay? You need someone to come and hold your hand and walk you through the basics of Christianity all over again. Now, from here, the author of Hebrews moves on to what is perhaps the most uh, misunderstood verses in the book of Hebrews, and and is definitely up there, like top five most misunderstood sections in all of the New Testament. 
Uh, it's Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Uh, I still remember as a young Christian, uh, I had a conversation with this young lady about whether or not Christians could lose their salvation, which is so funny because that's not even like uh, a question that is really talked about much in the New Testament. But we were debating back and forth, and she, uh, she enlisted her youth pastor, you know. And my youth pastor said, you definitely can't lose your salvation. And, uh, and I just remember thinking, this guy's an idiot. This guy's a pastor? Hasn't he read the Bible? Hasn't he read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6? And I opened up the Bible with her, and I, I read through it with her, and I said, don't you see this verse clearly teaches that you can lose your salvation? Uh, after a few years of study and reflection, I ended up changing my mind. Uh, and one of the reasons why is because I just learned how to read my Bible well. I learned how to do exegesis. I learned how to read a text in its proper context, so on and so forth. Um, but first, let's just walk through these verses, and I'll explain them to you uh, from what is sometimes called the Arminian view. But it's just the view that you can lose your salvation, okay? So Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says... For it is impossible, ooh, already strong language, right? In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And see, so I walked through these verses with her and I said, don't you understand that being enlightened is synonymous with salvation? And don't you understand that tasting the heavenly gift is synonymous with salvation? And don't you understand that only Christians can share in the Holy Spirit? And don't you understand what it means to have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come? These are all describing things that happen to people in conversion. My argument went. And then I said, and, and look it, isn't it obvious isn't it obvious here that if someone falls away, that they can't be restored to repentance? Isn't that obvious? And is, again, isn't it obvious? Look at the language that's tied to the crucifixion. If somebody falls away, they are re-crucifying the Son of God. And in my mind, that was just the strongest language possible. Well, I was wrong. So I'm going to try to show you why I was wrong. I'm going to try to help you understand these verses. So, the first argument has to do with these verbs. There are three verbs, four if you count uh, one of them being used twice. Uh, the verb enlightened, tasted, and shared. Do these verbs refer to salvific phenomena? That is, things that only happen for people who have been truly regenerate and united to Christ. And the answer to that is no. It's a, not only a no, it's a resounding no. Uh, what we've seen so far, uh, hopefully as we've walked through the Old Testament, uh, through several books of the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Hebrews, is that these verbs, these things, tasting, sharing, being enlightened, they refer to anyone who is connected to God's visible covenant community. So we've been walking through Hebrews, and one of the things that we saw in Hebrews was how the people of Israel were being led by the Spirit of God and by Moses through the wilderness. And what happened for them during that time? They were enlightened. They shared in the good gifts. They tasted of the goodness of the word of God. Quite literally, they ate the manna and the quail, right? They, as God's covenant people, received all of these covenant blessings that God was raining down on them from heaven. But what we saw last week is that not everyone who is a part of this visible covenant community known as the nation of Israel, not all of them were truly of Israel. Not all of them were truly converted, 
They all descended from the bloodline of Abraham, but they didn't all have the faith of Abraham. And so it was totally possible for people as part of this covenant community caravan moving through the wilderness for them to share in all of these rich blessings that God is raining down from them from heaven, but in fact not be converted, in fact not be saved. And many of them, the text tells us, fell away. It actually says that they fell in the wilderness, but that's the same thing. That's what this fall away language is derived from. When you learn how to read the Bible well, it's interesting. You can kind of follow a cohesive argument that authors make. So like if you're reading the book of Romans, it's just like one big long argument about justification by faith alone. When you read Hebrews, you understand that it's all about holding fast to your confession of faith, right? We talked about that last week. And what happens if you don't hold fast? You let go and when you let go, you fall. You fall away, right? The author of Hebrews uh, wouldn't even have it in his mind to be addressing the question of whether or not you could lose your salvation. What he would have in mind is whether or not you would abandon your profession. And we all know people who have done this very thing. People who have appeared to come to know Christ, who have professed faith in Christ, and then who have fallen away from their profession. They have said, yeah, actually I don't know if that's right or not. In the life of our own church, I think we've encountered a number of souls. I can think of one couple in particular Uh, members of this church, you probably know who I'm talking about, who uh, I think they did all of these things. We love them, we serve them, and as they were part of this covenant community, uh, they did all of these things. I think they tasted of the heavenly gift. They were enlightened. They saw Jesus as they had never seen him before. They shared in the Holy Spirit, which I don't think to mean that they were inhabited by the Holy Spirit. I think they shared in the Holy Spirit and his presence amongst God's gathered people, okay? And they tasted the goodness of the word of God. But they're not here now. And they're not in any church. They have not held fast to their confession. And so I have no good reason to be confident that they were ever saved in the first place. Okay, now we have two more phrases that we have to uh, address here. Uh, the first is this, this language of re-crucifixion. Uh, what does it mean in verse 6 when he says that they are crucifying once again the Son of God? Okay, so... Uh, you know how you're taking a multiple choice test and one of the best strategies, teachers probably teach this, is to try to eliminate the certain wrong answers, right? That'll kind of narrow the field a little bit. Well, you can do the same thing here, okay? What this certainly does not mean is that we would literally re-crucify the Son of God, that we would literally re-crucify Jesus. That's just not even possible. The, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 10, he says, Uh, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So it's it's done. It can't be, he can't be re-crucified. Jesus in his eternally glorious body is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. He's not going to come back down and get on the cross. Okay, so it's not literal. Well, what does it mean? I think the answer is found at the end of verse 6. This is why it's so important to just let the text speak for itself. It says, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I think this re-crucifixion language is talking about what happened when Jesus was crucified. Well, what did happen when Jesus was crucified? You remember Jesus came and he said, listen, I love you, I'm here to save you, I'm your king. 
Some of the Jews were like, all right, this is going to be great. And then they abandoned him, right? Some of them were like, no, you're not anything to us. We hate you. We're going to kill you, okay? But at the end of it, everyone abandoned him. And he died on a cross, despised. And at least according to the viewpoint of the world, ashamed. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, where you see the same language again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. There we read, uh, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So there, once again, you see this shame language. There is something shameful about dying a criminal's death, a slave's death on a cross rejected by those that you came to serve and love. That's what this language is about. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is, he's saying if you have professed Jesus, you've told the world that you love Jesus, that you want to follow Jesus, and then you've done that for a time in the gathering of his people, and then after you've tasted, after you've seen, after you've experienced, you've said, no, you know what, I don't want that. It's, it's basically like you're just hanging him on the cross again. You're just despising him. You're saying that he's worthless. That is what the author of Hebrews is communicating here. Now, we have to also address this language about restoring to repentance. He says really strongly, it is impossible to restore them once again to repentance. Uh, I, I think our natural inclination when we read that is to think about, um, to just think about it like this, you know, like, hey, they repented once, they came to Christ, it didn't stick. And you get one shot, you know? And if it didn't work in that one shot, it's just not going to happen. But we just know from everything else that we read in Scripture that that's just not the way repentance works, right? Okay? It's not like you got one shot, and if you don't get it on the first try, you don't get anything else. So I don't think that that's what it means. Uh, But what does it mean? Well, I think think we have to go back to Hebrews 12 again because I think he uses some of that same language there, referring to Esau. You, of course, remember Esau. He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. Look at 12, verses 16 and 17. He says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, what does he mean there? What is he talking about? He found no chance to repent. Well, here's the thing. Repentance is a heart phenomenon. It's something that flows up out of, his, out of our hearts. Whenever we repent, it's something that happens inside of us. So why was there no chance for him to find it? Well, because his heart was hard. And that's what we see the author of Hebrews warning us about over and over and over again. He says, be careful that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Your heart is not this thing that will remain forever pliable. It is a thing that if you indulge it with sin, can grow harder and harder and harder towards Jesus. You think about that in terms of your conscience, right? Think about if you've ever struggled with something like pornography, okay? Maybe you experienced that struggle as a Christian, you know, and you hadn't watched pornography ever. 
And then the first time you washed it, you were wrecked. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my wife or my future wife. This is bad. I've, I've contributed to the sex practices of the, you know, all this other stuff. It's just really bad and you were wrecked over it. And then you were a little less wrecked the next time. And a little less and a little less. And then pretty soon you had no problem watching pornography and going to church. You just didn't feel that conflict. Your heart was hardened. And that is what can happen to all of us. And that's what the author of Hebrews is warning us against. And what is possible is for us to have hearts that are so hard that even if we desire to repent, we will not be able to. One of the ways that our hearts can be hardened is if we profess to know Jesus, we gather with his people, we experience the rich blessings of the Holy Spirit and the gathered covenant community, and then we turn away from it and we turn to sin. Every time we do that, our heart gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And then one day we might find ourselves experiencing the consequences of our sin, like Esau, who realized what he did and how stupid it was, and he wanted to go back and change it, but he couldn't. And that might happen to us. We might realize how messed up sin is and how it's destroyed us in our relationship with God, and we may say, you know what? No, I don't want this anymore, but when that time comes, it may be too late. Ultimately, I think that that day comes when we die. When we close our eyes, that is how you can know for certain that there's no more repentance available for you. And the way we function as human beings is we don't, I'm reading a book right now about the sinking of the Lusitania and uh, everyone is big, big cargo uh, passenger ship that was traveling from uh, New York to Ireland, no, to Liverpool. And uh, everyone was saying submarines are gonna sink this ship. Submarines are going to sink the ship. Uh, there was a warning put out in the New York Post two days before the ship left. It said, you probably shouldn't take this voyage because we're pretty sure German submarines are going to sink this ship. But like the warning didn't seem real to people. And then they got on the boat and they kept hearing there's submarines in the area and it just didn't seem real to them. And then one of the most interesting things about this story is it says that many of the passengers, as they saw the torpedo coming towards them, it just didn't seem real to them. They saw a torpedo coming towards them to sink their ship. And what they should have done is run for cover. They should have ran to the lifeboats. They should have put on their life jackets. They should have prepared for impact and sinking. But everyone says that it just didn't seem real to them until the boat was going underwater, until they were floating in the ocean, hoping to be saved. But by then, it was too late. Friends, do not let this be the case for you. This morning, do not let your heart be hard to God and to his word. I'm pleading with you. As a pastor, I'm, I know what I'm saying is hard and I'm afraid that you're not gonna hear me. But you need to make sure that your heart remains supple towards God and that it is not hardened by sin. Because the day may come where you want to turn away from your sin and you'll find that you can't. And the only thing that will be left for you is God and his eternal wrath. Verses seven and eight are so important to understand here. Most people stop reading at verse six. Uh, this is why it's so important for us to remember that one of the keys to reading our Bibles well is to read a text in light of its context. 
So if you stop at verse 6, you're still going to be pretty confused maybe. But verse 7 is, is helpful. It says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful uh, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here the author of Hebrews, like a good pastor, he gives an illustration to help his people understand what he's saying. He's saying, hey, listen, all those covenant blessings, the, the tasted of, the, the revelation, all that stuff, it's like rain that falls down from heaven. And he says, in, in your community, there are two different kinds of land that receive the same rain. One land is a good land. It's a land that has been changed by God. It's a land that when the rain of God's covenant blessings falls on it, it produces fruit. But then there's other land. There's other soil. There's other hearts. That when it receives the rain of God's covenant blessing, it produces no fruit and only bears thorns and thistles. So think about that this morning in light of this gathering of covenant people. We all here, I think, profess to be Christians right? And we are all receiving, even as I'm preaching God's word to you this morning, the sweet rain of God's covenant blessings. Not every heart here is going to bear fruit. Some hearts here are going to bear thorns and thistles. That is what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. Now, let's close by looking at verses 9 through 10. You guys have done so good so far. Let's, let's uh, hang on tight and make it all the way home. So, is it verses 9 and 10? Oh, I pulled a Sean. Oh, no. Oh, no, we're in chapter 6. Okay. Verses 9 and 10. He says, though we speak in this way. So, uh, one little interesting tidbit. Who's the we there? I don't know. Uh, then he says, uh, and we speak in this way. And what, he's, what he means there is like, hey, I recognize that I'm saying something hard to you, okay? So, like, I recognize that this has probably been difficult for you to stomach. He says, yet in your case... Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And here you just see the author of Hebrews being a good pastor, right? He's balancing, uh, on the one hand, this, this exhortation, this warning, this saying a very hard thing, with, on the other hand, encouragement, right? And as a pastor, I read this and I totally understand it because I feel this pressure all the time. You know, I stand up before you or I say it in a one-on-one -on -one meeting or in a counseling session or in a small group or a, in a Bible study or a Sunday school and like I, I feel the need in light of the reality of the gospel to say difficult things to you because you're, you're not gonna get it in a lot of churches. So I'm, I feel that need to say something difficult. But I also feel the need to make sure that you're not leaving beat down, that you're not leaving crushed, right? And so I want to encourage you. And, and even though it's true that, like, even statistically speaking, that not everyone, like, in this room, for example, is a Christian, I, as a pastor, still want to say, and I genuinely mean it when I do say, that I feel confident about this room. I feel confident about the people in our church that better things belong to them, things pertaining to salvation. It's a very difficult balance to strike, uh, you should pray for those who God has given to serve you as your teachers and, and preachers in the Lord, those who God has given to lead you spiritually, that they would do a good job of striking this balance because it's not always easy, okay? Um, then next, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, and we desire each one of you. So now he's saying like, 
specifically, individuals, like I'm not just speaking about the group, I want every last one of you in the church to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who, faith, who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so now we have another balance, right? He says, listen, you, you have a choice. You can be sluggish or you can be, what's the word he uses there? You can be earnest to show that you really belong to the Lord. You know, a lot of Christians struggle. They say, I want to have assurance. I want to have some kind of deep-seated assurance that I belong to God, but they never want to do anything to, to give themselves that sense of assurance. Part of assurance is just thinking about the truths of the gospel, but part of it is actually making sure that you obey the gospel. And if you obey the gospel, you have good reason to be confident that you belong to Jesus. So in closing, I don't want to say anything profound. I just want to ask you a question. In your walk with the Lord, even if you're, listen, I've re- we got some teenagers here this morning, you know, 11, 12, 13, who I don't, I'm not sure about your spiritual, spiritual condition, but maybe you profess to know Jesus. You say, yes, Pastor Sean, I do believe this. I, I want to follow Jesus. And I just want to ask you, even at a young age, are you, are you being sluggish towards the things of God, the things that will matter forever? Or are you being earnest? If you've been following Jesus your whole life, I want to ask you that same question. If you're up there, 60, 70 years old, don't think that you've crossed a certain age barrier where it's okay to be sluggish towards Jesus now. At this point in your life, I would think you would be all the more eager to strive to enter into his rest, all the more eager to have that comfort and that confidence that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll close there. Let me pray. Father, your word is is bigger than us. It's beyond us. But by the help of your spirit, uh, you help us to receive it by faith, and it changes us. Lord, we understand now in part, but one day we will understand the whole, and we pray that you would uh, help us to persevere until that day, and that you would help us to look forward to it expectantly with hearts full of joy. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.